I regret to uh, inform you that that wasn't all of the announcements. I didn't make them, so I'll make a couple more. Um, in connection with our Wednesday night uh, fall series, we're also going to have an attended nursery because we're going to go back in that on that night having only one class and everybody in there to hear our speakers, and that may, may be a challenge to some with smaller children uh, after working all day and then coming and trying to wrestle them uh, in just one group setting. And so we're going to rotate those who, who are in charge of that attended nursery throughout those seven weeks that we'll be doing that. So if you would like to help with that, you can, you can see me or contact the office and uh, we'll put that schedule together. Uh, we don't want anyone to have to miss all of them or even uh, a number of them, but all hands on deck and we'll be able to uh, accommodate our needs in that area. Also, it's in the bulletin, the uh, hello party uh, for the um, McCarty students, church staff, McCarty board of directors, and uh, any church members employed by Texas State will be next Sunday night, and so we want to make that uh, known to you. And then the last Sunday night of this month will be the college adoption uh, pairing up, get together after evening service, and so I'll just implore you uh, to uh, be a part of that, whether you are one who's willing to adopt or one who's wanting to be adopted. Uh, because of the current situation uh, in our world, our, our, uh, some of our students uh, that enrolled didn't move here and some that enrolled did, derolled and then uh, didn't come. And so uh, numbers are a little bit different this year. But if you are grad student or college age, do things with McCarty, we'd love for you to be a part of that program. Uh, if nothing else, it means a free meal every now and then and a developed relationship with someone in the congregation. It should mean a whole lot more than that. And so hopefully you will be a part of that. We would encourage you to do so. If you have any questions, you can see uh, David or Judy uh, about uh, those things. The question before us this morning pertains to a bridge between last month and this month. Okay, we, we, have, we have discussed at length the depth and the power and the purpose of salvation that we have in Jesus Christ, what it means for us, what it, what it brings to us, what it provides for us. But the question has to be asked then, now what? Now I am a Christian. Now I understand the, the importance of my salvation in Jesus. I, I'm appreciative of all that he did and the plan throughout time to, to redeem me through Christ. So what does that mean for the way that I live? What does that mean for the actions that I take? Am I now saved to live any way that I want to live? Am I redeemed to just be thrown back into the world to fend for myself and to deal with all the struggles and difficulties of life on my own? Or is there something expected of me now that I'm a Christian? There's, there's not necessarily, and you probably could tell this over the years, there's not necessarily a direct connection from one month to another as we move from theme to theme except for under our overall theme. But this year, and in these two months in particular, there absolutely is. They were put in this order for this reason. Now that I know how precious the salvation I've been given through Jesus is, what do I do with that? And in short, I'm expected to do some pretty amazing things and to be somebody pretty amazing as a result of that. Just listen to the New Testament writers. In Colossians chapter 3, Beginning in verse 1, Therefore, if you have been raised up with Christ, keep seeking those things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on things that are on the earth. Now, I know we've read and heard those verses most of our lives, but have you ever thought about how staggering that challenge is? 
to live a life in a, in a world full of difficulty and distractions and to actually meditate regularly on the things that are above? To not let our minds be, be overrun and overtaken by things that are earthly? Now, I think later on in the text, he's going to describe what he means by earthly in this chapter, and that is the things that are sensual and, and, and seductive and alluring from a sin, sinful situation. But generally speaking, that's not all that applies here. You know, we can be distracted from being who God wants us to be just merely by being caught up in the day-to-day aspect of life, of, of living life, of going to work, of rearing our children, of, of paying the bills, and, and miss out on what it really means to set our affections on things above. That is an exalted expectation of us. Peter said it this way in 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 22, Since you have obeyed or have in obedience to the truth, purified your souls for a sincere love of the brethren. In in essence, what he's saying is what Paul said. Since you've been raised, since you've been saved, here's the command, fervently love one another from the heart. Friends, that's an exalted expectation. That's a requirement that, that causes me and challenges me to be better than the world. And to treat people differently than the world treats them. To do better than I did before I was risen with Christ or saved through His blood. Maybe the most staggering of those expectations is found in Matthew chapter 5 and verse 48. Therefore you are to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Now if you just want to throw everything else out and and make us feel like we're going to run for the hills, this is it, isn't it? Now that you're a Christian, now you've been raised with Christ, be perfect. You say, well, I, that, that really doesn't mean sinless per- perfection. And then he adds this qualifier, just as your heavenly Father is perfect. Because there's no more exalted expectation than that. Now, you and I know very well that we don't always live up to this. Right? I don't think that I have to be the, the, the bearer of bad news this morning... This is not always how we live. Since we've been raised with Christ, sometimes we still seek those things that are earthly. Sometimes we don't show love to our brethren. Sometimes we don't act in keeping with the nature and character of the one who saved us. So what do we do then when we don't measure up? What do we do? To these exalted and lofty expectations, what do we do when we don't measure up? Now, there are two approaches, I suppose, that we could take to investigating this question this morning. One of those is individually. What what do you do when you realize your life is not consistent with the Word of God? Now, every answer in this room might be a little bit different, but it will contain generally the same concepts, won't it? I I repent of my sins. I vow to change. I, I make adjustments in my life where necessary. I I apologize. I may even walk the aisle and make a public confession. But I personally will will look into the mirror of God's Word and do my best to adjust my life. When I don't measure up, I'll change. But I don't want to ask it from an individual perspective this morning. Because that's probably 95% of the time the way we look at it. Maybe even 100% of the time. The Bible deals with this question and this scenario not just on an individual level, but it deals with it in a corporate setting as well. So I want us to go to Ezra chapter 9 this morning. And I want us to answer the question or ask the question and attempt to answer the question as it pertains to us collectively. Because you see, if if individually 
I'm supposed to mimic the nature and character of Jesus, if individually I'm supposed to be perfect as my Heavenly Father is perfect, if individually I'm supposed to seek those things which are above and practice a sincere love of the brethren, then certainly that must be true of us collectively, right? If, it's, if we're all individually responsible for it, then we're all collectively responsible for it. And God will judge us, I believe, in both aspects. I believe he sits in judgment of our actions and our attitudes corporately and collectively every single week. Not that our eternal destiny will be based on how each other acts. I'm not going to get to go to heaven because you're good. And you're not going to get to go to heaven because someone sits down the pew from you has done right when you choose to do wrong. But he does sit in judgment of who we are. He does, he does survey and, 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 and weigh in the balance what, what we have vowed to be as a local church. Appreciate Nick reading for us from the first four verses. I, I do apologize for the names. I try very rarely to give a text that has anything difficult in it. He did a, a tremendous job in just breezing right through it, but I could imagine, David, when he first looked at it, how angry he was at me, and so I will apologize publicly for him being given that scripture reading. But Ezra sets the scene here of, of a man who sees a need for judgment on a collective people. What happens in this chapter is, is sorrowful, but amazing. But what I want to do first, as we consider this, we just want to do two things this morning, then we'll ask a question when we get to the end. I want us to look at Ezra's resume. What, what about this man makes chapter 9 so important? I mean, what, what you find, if you, and we'll read that, the rest of that chapter momentarily, but, but what you'll find is a man who is distraught by the actions of his nation. He, he is put out and ashamed of what his people have done. Now, we have no record that Ezra was involved in the sin, and yet he bore the guilt and the frustration and the sorrow for it. I think it's right for us to stop and say, well, why would Ezra be so upset? What, what, what about him is so important in this scenario? Well, you have to go back to chapter 7. There are a handful of clues. In chapter 7, verse 5, for example, the Bible reveals to us that he is the son of Phinehas of Eleazar, son of Aaron, the chief priest. You, you relay his ancestry back. You're going to go all the way back to Aaron. He is of a priestly descent. In fact, you'll find the first five verses of chapter 7 dedicated to the ancestry of Ezra. I don't know of anyone in Scripture outside the ancient patriarchs that, that have as many of their family names listed leading up to them other than Jesus. Ezra has that. Five verses giving his ancestry. Revealing that he is of priestly origin. That is, his ancestors were concerned about ceremonial cleanliness, about sacrificial offerings, about feast day observance, about keeping the law. He was of priestly Descent. The Bible also says in the very next verse that he was a skilled scribe in the law of Moses. Older versions will say he was a ready scribe, meaning that not only did he learn the scriptures, but he learned how to use them. He learned how to explain them. He, he, he was equipped in, in conversing about them. Doesn't that stand in stark contrast to a number of Old Testament priests? Not just in his ability to carry out the functions, but in, in what he knew about it and, what he, and how he cared about it. And we, we learn the process, don't we, in verse 10, the more familiar verse in this chapter? How did he become a ready or skilled scribe? 
because he said it's hard to study the law of the Lord and to practice it and to teach its statutes and ordinance in Israel. He, he let it soak into his mind and his heart. This is who Ezra is. And so Ezra knows the scriptures. He knows the history of God's people. He understands the, the, the inca- incompatible nature of, of sinfulness and holiness. That a man can't come before God with, with impure hands and offer a clean sacrifice. He understands all of that. This is not just someone off the street. It's not just another Israelite. It's not just another preacher. This is a man whose heart is fully invested in Scripture and then fully attuned to the mistakes of his people. That man's resume then caused his reaction. What was his reaction? Now, here's we'll do something today that we don't generally do in a, in a, a, a public setting like this. I want us to read the rest of this chapter. In chapter 9, I'll point out after we get done some, some, some individual phrases or thoughts or concepts that might help, but I'm, I'm not sure that we can get the sense of the tragedy in Ezra's heart because of the fact that his nation didn't measure up unless we hear it and read it in its fullness. I've got the verses on the screen. I'll try to be able to keep up switching them and also uh, reading through this. Beginning in verse 5. He says, but at evening offering, I arose from my humiliation, even with my garment and my robe torn, and I fell on my hands and knees and stretched out my hands to the Lord my God. And I said, to, and I said oh my God, I am ashamed and embarrassed to lift up my face to you, for God, I, for our iniquities have risen above our heads and our guilt has grown to the heavens. Since the days of our fathers to this day, We have been in great guilt, and on account of our iniquities, we, our kings and our priests, have been given into the land to the kings of the the land, to to the sword, to captivity, and to plunder, and open shame, as it is this day. But now, for a brief moment, grace has been shown from the Lord our God to leave us an escaped remnant and to give us a peg in His holy place that our God might enlighten our eyes and grant us a little reviving in our bondage. For we are slaves, yet in our bondage our God has not forsaken us, but has extended loving kindness to us in in the sight of the kings of Persia and, and to give us reviving, to raise up the house of our God, to restore its ruins, to give us a wall in Judah and Jerusalem. Now our God, what shall we say after this? For we have forsaken your commandments. Which you have commanded by your servants, the prophets, saying, The land which you are entering to possess is an unclean land with, uncleanness, with the uncleanness of the peoples of the land. And there are abominations which have filled end to end and with their impurity. So now do not give your daughters to their sons, nor take your daughters to your sons, and never seek peace or their prosperity, that you may be strong and eat of the good things of the land. Leave it as an inheritance for your sons forever. I'm sure I'm ahead of myself in the switching but i apologize for that after all this has come upon us our evil deeds and our great guilt since your father has required of us less than our iniquities deserve and has given us an escaped remnant as this shall we break again your commandments and intermarry with the peoples who've committed these abominations will you not be angry with us to the point of destruction until there is no remnant 
or any who have escaped. O Lord God of Israel, you are righteous, for we have been left an escaped remnant in, as it is this day. Behold, we are before you in our guilt, for no one can stand before you because of this. There is a, a sorrowful and difficult disposition that Ezra takes. Listen to the words that he used. He says in verse 4, I am astonished or I am appalled. He, he says in verse 5, I'm in my humiliation. He says that he's both ashamed and embarrassed. That's his reaction. Friends, I want you to think for a moment about the general feeling we have about our brethren. I hope that doesn't describe it. Oh, that's not how we think about the university congregation and the Lord's church as a whole. But I believe there are moments in our history where our collective shortcomings ought to drive us to these reactions. He said, in fact, in the first four verses, I sat appalled. I sat all the day ashamed. I cannot believe God's people acted like this. And what's interesting about this is there have been about 60 years between the time that the temple was built and the time Ezra comes on the scene. They've had a generation or two to get this right. They've had the worship again as a fixture of their land, the temple of God where God should have been dwelling among His people, present in their land. And yet, as Ezra comes on the scene, he cannot believe what he's seen. He is humiliated. He is ashamed. He is embarrassed. I don't know that we can emphasize enough the depths of what he feels. I want to I share something with you. I'm not sure that what he felt was limited to what he saw Israel do against God. I think he was comparing that to what God had done for Israel. Did you catch that as we read it? Did, did you hear those phrases? He said, God, in this, in this moment, had given us grace and he had given us the opportunity to be enlightened. That, that he gave us a, a, a reviving, a, a loving kindness. As God's working this out, he gave us, he says, a peg in the land. He put us back, just like he promised he would do. And then, in essence, as we're saying, we haven't been any more faithful now than our fathers were before. Our iniquity's overflowing. Seems a little bit dramatic, doesn't it? Why did he feel that way? Because his people had not learned to trust God and to just obey. And so he made this, this great confession, this, this heartfelt admission to God. Now, I've heard a lot of prayers in our public assemblies, some that, it, that have driven me to tears, that have reminded me of how great God is and how small I am that it has made us feel like we're literally standing before the throne of God and bowing in His presence. I've never heard a prayer like this among God's people. I've never prayed a prayer like this among God's people. So I guess the question would be then, if we haven't prayed this prayer, is that because we're so much better than Israel of old? And we, we, We've never had the, 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 the privilege of living in a land that God just kind of put us in? And gave us grace, enlightened our eyes, showed his loving kindness when we didn't deserve it, it gave us opportunities again and again and again for revival. And when he did all of those things, did we live in a way that 
would not cause shame or embarrassment upon him, then why haven't we prayed this prayer? I wonder if the Lord's church is suffering because it won't admit when it fails. Now, let's go back to that scenario we mentioned earlier about the individual situations. You and I would, would, would pursue and, and, even, and even hound, if need be, a, a, an individual who goes away from the truth. Someone who, who openly and overtly does that which is wrong and, and brings shame and reproach upon the church. And we would, we would commit ourselves to them and we would, we would give our time and energy. We would make sure they knew, you need to repent. And then we'll ma- gather among God's people with knowledge of sin amongst its members, with shortcomings in its community, with apathy in its pews, and we would never demand that same change collectively. It's not you this morning that I'm ashamed of. It's me. Because I haven't prayed this. And I haven't demanded it of us. It's easy to preach sermons that someone will say amen to and great job and thank you for that. And we sure got them today. And if somebody were here to hear that that needed it, you would have told them. Sometimes we need to leave upset. Sometimes we need to leave embarrassed. Because God in his loving kindness and his grace has enlightened us. And we as a whole sometimes do not follow what he has said. So I would end this morning by just asking... What would our confession be? It's really the only thing this morning that I have notes for. And I wrote some things down. This, this is it. What would our confession be? And I'm not going to state it for us. I'm going to ask. I'm going to ask. If Ezra were to move into our assembly as a skilled scribe in the law of Jesus. Survey our activities and our agendas and our purposes and our reactions and say to us, this is what we've done. Would he say that we have lacked the urgency for the lost and the wayward? Would he question us about how many people we've approached this past week to study the gospel with us? About how many people, where they attend church services and what they need from, from Jesus? Do they even know him? Would he chastise us for that? Not individually, but we collectively fail in that test. Would we be guilty tolerating sin among God's people? Even that sin which is overt. And obvious, not calling for repentance among God's people. Would we be charged with misplacing our trust in government officials and election days rather than the right and reign of God as he rules? Would we be charged with arrogance because we had found truth and not shared it with anyone else, but used it to defend the fact that we were right? We'd be charged with defending our own traditions and our own procedures as being equal to the doctrine of Jesus Christ. Would our confession be that of a lack of love and personal concern and harmony among God's people? Would it be our apathy or our worldliness or our materialism? 
What would our confession be? See, here's the thing. I know we talk about church problems, don't we? I know we do. Who do we talk to about them? There's not a conversation that's going to be had between the two of us or the 170 of us that's as powerful as the conversation between me and God about what my church family needs. These expectations are not placed upon you by a preacher or a scribe of the Old Testament or an eldership in our current generation. If you've been risen with Christ, if you have been saved by the blood of Jesus, then your responsibility is exalted in nature. Have we lived up to it? Or this morning, do we need to make some type of confession? If it's collectively, friends, let's put our heads together and let's make it collectively and let's get it right. If it's individually, then let's take care of it individually. We offer the Lord's invitation now for any who might need to come while we stand and sing.